Zechariah chapters 7 and 8. Now, you may remember as we have gone through this study on renewal, we've been focusing in on that book of Haggai. And in the Old Testament, there are these four books that cover the same time period. The books that tell the history, the story of this period of time are in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. The two prophets who speak during that time are Haggai and Zechariah. So these two guys are contemporaries. They know each other, and they're often prophesying to the same individuals as well. Now, Haggai and his partner Zechariah have been encouraging the remnant of people to rebuild the temple. They've been in exile, they've released, some of them have come home, and now they've been busy rebuilding the temple. And as we have seen, there's been an unusual amount of success that these guys have had. Typically, prophets don't have this kind of success. They tell the people of God to do what God wants them to do, and normally the answer is, nah. (laughs) But it's worked well for Haggai and Zechariah up to this point. Now, what happens here in chapter 7 is that we are actually fast-forwarding two years after the end of the book of Haggai. The prophecies, the sermons that happen in that book happen in, as he puts it, the second year of King Darius. Zechariah chapter 7 opens in the fourth year of King Darius. And here's what happens. Two years later, we discover a brand new need for the prophetic voice to come. What happens in this text is that we have a brand new question that comes about a religious practice. And the question leads to this rather lengthy sermon from Zechariah to the people of God. We're actually past now the emotional rush of the Spirit of God pouring out upon his people and Haggai reminding his people to do their work. And we're past that sort of emotional and courageous rush of rebuilding the temple. It's gotten started. There's two years of work now under their belts. And originally, they had to oppose the enemies who are around them. They had to defy the order of the Persian king. And that comes with a lot in that initial rush of renewal. And we are now into a brand new pattern of life. They were courageous enough to defy all of that, but now they're back into the settled pattern of their daily lives and their religious habits. Now, this becomes a very common pattern when renewal happens within us on any level. Oftentimes, God does something unique and powerful inside of our own lives, and there is, we experience this kind of individual renewal, and it's a powerful relationship with the Holy Spirit for a period of time. But over time, we go back to work, we go back to our normal patterns, normal daily life happens, and we just sort of slip out of that. It happens individually, and it happens on a corporate level as well. The dust settles, life goes back to normal, and all of our religious and family and daily practices feel like they go back to the way that they were. So when that happens, what do we do next? What should we do? What should we remind ourselves of when that sort of thing happens? What do we need to maintain with the Spirit of God? What do we need to maybe change again when it comes to the work of God within us? What will keep the work of renewal doing its thing inside of our lives as only it can happen? It is absolutely critical when we address the notion of revival or renewal or the work of the Spirit of God inside of our lives that we address this matter of spiritual stagnation. Things feel old, things feel stale, things feel ordinary again. It's important that we do this even in the context of renewal. 
Way too many Christians and way too many churches just live in a pattern of stagnation, right? And in stagnation, some really interesting things begin to happen to the people of God. Oftentimes, we maintain our belief in the truths of Scripture, the core of our doctrine. So we don't change what we believe, but all of our religious practices, everything that we do, it begins to feel cold or old. It, becomes in, it turns into this kind of hollow shell inside of our lives. So sometimes that's how spiritual stagnation happens. Other times, spiritual stagnation happens. The people of God decide, well, this isn't exciting anymore, so I'm going to change what I believe, and things in culture seem to be attractive. So I'm going to believe what culture tells me about God, and everything is about me is going to change. And We actually release hold of the things of God. Sometimes in spiritual stagnation, we just become a bunch of Pharisees, and it isn't that exciting. Well, you can show up to church with a bunch of legalistic Pharisees. The answer is correct. It is not fun to do that. But this is often what happens inside of spiritual stagnation. So here's what we're going to read and what we're going to deal with as we pick up the big ideas in these two chapters in the middle of the book of Zechariah. And the first is this. The church needs the truth of God's word. But something that's going to happen this morning is we're going to actually remind ourselves of several of these principles that we've dealt with throughout the series, and we're going, to try, we're going to tie them together. But the church needs the truth of God's Word. So Zechariah is going to remind the people of God to hear the law of God, listen to what the prophets have to th say through the power of the Spirit, and then obey what God has given you to do. So the church also needs the Spirit of the Lord to be alive and to be at work. I love the fact that we were reminded this morning that the Spirit of God wants to draw us near and near to Jesus Christ. Zechariah actually reminds God's people of the connection between their obedience to the truth and the power of God's Spirit at work amongst His people. There's a connection there, guys, between our obedience to the Word of God and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit inside of His people. So the church needs the Spirit of God at work. And the church needs to keep our mission to the world in mind. It's amazing to me how the, uh, the, the sermon sort of ends in chapter 8 as we're reminded of this. Zechariah does. He reminds us that the church is a group of people of justice and of mercy and of people who exist to tell the world about our Jesus Christ. Only an obedient and thriving church can be a part of this plan of God's. To flood the world with His presence, right? So here are the three things that we're putting together this morning. Sort of drawing a bunch of these things together this morning, and here are the things that we're drawing together. The need for the Word of God, the truth of God, the need for the Spirit of God, the presence of God at work amongst His people, and the need for our vision of the world, God's sense of mission, the purpose that the church has to show the world the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And that, as those things are alive and at work inside of the church, will lead to a vibrant and renewed people of God. So here's what happens in Zechariah chapter 7 two years after Haggai is done preaching. Zechariah 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech 
always exciting reading the Old Testament, isn't it? And their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? All right, so this is a really interesting moment. And we have to understand, again, the context, what brings this group of people here and why they are asking this specific question. So, in the fourth year of Darius, two years after the Haggai, we have this delegation of Israelites who come from the city of Bethel, and they come to the city of Jerusalem so that they can talk to God's prophets and God's priests. A very specific question. Should I continue to act, should I continue to uh, engage in this one particular fast as we have been doing for so many years. Okay, what fast are they talking about? They're talking about a fast that the people of God instituted to remind themselves on a yearly basis of the destruction of the temple. So on the annual, you know, the, the, the anniversary, so to speak, of the, the, the time when Nebuchadnezzar showed up, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, took the people of Judah into exile into Babylon, from that point forward, this is a little over 70 years now, they've been observing this fast to remember, to commemorate the fall of the temple. So the people now come with this delegation saying, now, because the temple is being rebuilt, do we need to keep engaging in this fast? Does that make sense? We've been remembering the fall of the temple, but the temple's in the background being rebuilt. Do we need to keep doing this? Now, part of what's fun about moments like this in Scripture is that this question has a simple yes or no answer to it, doesn't it? They've come and they've said, yes or no, do we need to continue this fast? The problem is, is that they've asked one of God's prophets a question, right? You don't get a yes or no answer when you talk to one of God's prophets. So now God leads Zechariah to step into this situation and begin to speak to God's people about their fasting and their relationship with him. So that's the question. And now Zechariah launches into the answer. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? In other words, the prophets before the exile, God said these kinds of things. When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited, meaning before the exile, didn't God talk to you guys about how these kinds of fasts and feasts needed to work? So here's what happens. God draws their attention back to the time before the exile, and God is saying to them, your grandparents fasted, but they didn't do it for me. They did it for themselves. Your grandparents obeyed the feasts that I gave them as well. But when they feasted together, they didn't do it for me. They did it for themselves. And that's what got them sent into exile. So the people of God have come and said, there's this religious practice that we engage in every year on this day. Do we need to keep doing this now? And God says, that's not the question. The question is, why are you doing it? 
Are you doing it for yourselves? Are you doing it for me? One of the beautiful things about how God structures the lives of his people, the liturgies of the feasts and the fasts and the sacrifices and the days of worship and the days of abstinence and on and on it goes, all these things are not intended to be cold, legalistic, ritualistic things. God intends for his people to do them every time with their eyes on him. So God has this intention for all of the fasts and for all of the feasts. God's intentions, we're going to learn about fasting, include things like repentance and sacrifice. We give up something in our daily lives or give up something in our routines. We lay it aside and we spend that time with God. We're sacrificing when we fast. God intends there to be reflection. And God intends there to be obedience and justice. This becomes a fascinating reality with what God intends when we fast. He wants it to turn into obedience into the real world. God has intentions for our feasting as well. And these are really beautiful moments inside of Old Testament Scripture. They're kind of cool to read in the book of Deuteronomy. But God's intentions for feasting, again, were things like Thanksgiving. We think of our Thanksgiving coming up, and and I don't know about you, but I intend to feast as much as I possibly can. This is what Thanksgiving is about, right? God intends us to do this with our eyes on Him. He intends our feasting to be generosity and sharing and joy and worship. God says, I've been telling you guys this for generations. You're asking about fasting. They fasted, and they went into exile. So now let's talk about what fasting is actually like. You see, all of that had been lost, had been turned into a hollow religious activity. And now God is at work dealing with their hearts and minds and what he intends with their lives and with even their religious activity. Sermon continues, chapter 7, verse 8, goes like this. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. This is beautiful language in this passage. It's very provocative language. Listen to this. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore... Great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate. They are now back trying to rebuild that, so they know this. So that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate." Here's what I want you to do. You've asked a question about your religious behavior. You've asked a question about the fast. And it turns out that God is not going to tell them, don't fast. I don't care about that. He's not going to say that. 
But what he is going to say is, when you fast, here's what it needs to turn into. I need you to render true judgments. I need you to stop oppressing those whom you are oppressing. I need you to stop devising evil toward one another. I need you to quit lying to each other. Can you hear what God is doing inside of the hearts of his people instead of just the facade of a religious practice? You see, everything God lists in this text is something that God has required his people to do in Old Testament scripture. All of it is just a matter of obedience. All of it is already there. This isn't new information. The prophet is calling the people of God back to the things of God. And all of it is a part of the expression of the Spirit of the Lord at work amongst the people of God. So in the context of fasting, this is the question that they are asking. God's not going to tell them to stop fasting. But he will tell them that the outcome he is looking for is the result of the fullness of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the lifestyle that is guided by the Spirit in the obedience of the people of God. The Old Testament is actually full of exactly this kind of language. And it might surprise us to think that God speaks this way often, especially in a book that is guided by law. Here's some of what God has to say about this matter. There's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where Samuel, who is acting as a prophet, comes to King Saul. And King Saul is very bad in his obedience with God. And, and he's made a mistake, and King Saul thinks that he can make sacrifices and make things right with God with just another sort of ritualistic sort of sacrifice. And Samuel shows up, and here's part of what he tells him. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices... As in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You can engage in these religious practices all day long. What God is looking for is obedience. What he is looking for is a life that is drawn nearer and nearer to God. Isaiah chapter 58 you should go home, and especially if you're going to take part in our fasting and prayer this week, and read through Isaiah 58. It is a stark chapter of Scripture. And it's all about fasting, and it's all about how the people of God have fasted inappropriately. And here's how that chapter begins. Isaiah 58, verse 3, goes like this. It's this conversation between the people of God and God. Why have we fasted and you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And God answers and says this, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. And it gets even more exciting from there. <laughs> the whole chapter is about you've fasted, you've pretended to seek my face, you've pretended to do what I've called you to do, and you haven't done any of it. So that's why I haven't paid attention to any of your religious practices. That's why I haven't listened to any of your fasting. Because you've done it for your own good. Not for me. Not even for your neighbor. So Zechariah reminds these people who've come back from exile and who are rebuilding the temple. He says, look, God, we know God told our grandparents all of this. And the text says there in verse 12, but they refused to listen you should take this phrase home with you. They made their hearts diamond hard against me. Isn't that provocative? 
But notice how that behavior allows God's people to think that they are doing all of the right things. They're fasting when they're supposed to. They're feasting when they're supposed to. They're doing it at all of the right times with all of the right people. So it gives them a pretext, pretext that they are now doing everything right before God. But it turns out, right, that the point of their fasting, the point of all of their religious activity, was to allow God access to their hearts and lives so that now their lives can reflect the character and the nature of God. That's why we do stuff like this. This is why we engage in spiritual disciplines. This is why we do something like fast and pray together, not so that we can check some box off and say, God, don't you listen to me because I've done something for you, is to allow God access to our lives to turn us into people who look more and more like Jesus Christ. God says in the text here in verse 12, what he wants them to do is to hear the law that God has spoken to them. The Lord as hosts has spoken to them. So guys, we see this again. We watch this happen through the rest of this series, and we hear it here again. The truth and the full impact of the Word of God is necessary for renewal. It's absolutely necessary for our renewal. So we write, remind ourselves of a couple of these principles. In renewal, God's people fall in love with the truth. We learn what this is. We learn what this is like. We learn what kind of life this produces. We learn how these things tell us about who God is. And let me tell you something that happens when the people of God fall in love with the truth. You learn to hate falsehood more and more. Not just because it's falsehood, but because you watch the destruction it creates in people's lives. You hate what is false because you've learned to love what is right and what is true. We've noticed this through this series, but it is important for us to keep this in mind. And every now and then, I just, I'm just going to kind of step out there and say a couple of things, and you can do whatever you want to with it. There has never been, there never will be, revival amongst liberal churches. Never because they've let go of the truth of the Word of God. If you don't even believe the Spirit of God works anymore, why would the Spirit of God work anymore? If you don't even believe the resurrection is true, why would the living Savior be at work amongst His people? Renewal inside of the church of Jesus Christ requires us to fall in love with the truth. And the corollary to this thought that we dealt with before as well, renewal requires belief in the authority of the Word of God. It really is true information about the nature of God and how He works. It really is true information about how the human heart works, how our relationships work. There is authority to the Word of God. And so the people of God here in the book of Zechariah, right, acting like they are religious, lets them believe that they are getting away with genuine relationship with God. Now remember, it wasn't all that long ago that we had this renewal, we had this wave of obedience, and they started the temple, got fearful, became courageous again, restarted the temple, all of this great and beautiful stuff that was happening. It wasn't that long ago. 
It doesn't take long for us to lose sight, guys, of God's genuine work among us. It doesn't take long for us to slip back into old and normal habits and to lose sight of the work of the Spirit of God. So us, we as the people of God, we need to keep the Word of God before us constantly. We need to keep the desire for the work of the Holy Spirit before us constantly as the church of Jesus Christ. The text even puts it like this. I want you to hear the law that's been given to you by the Lord of hosts through the Spirit of God. All of this is being done by the active work of the Holy Spirit of God. Doing this work of communication and translation between God and His people. And I love this thought. That God's Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament, is the voice that communicates the Word of God to His people. Now, we can sit up here and we can read the Word of God and we can talk about it a little bit and it can hit our ears and we can walk out of here and nothing can happen. That's one way of listening to the Word of God. Or the Holy Spirit can begin to work and open our ears. That's the divine work of the Word of God at work in the lives of God's people. So the giving and the receiving of the Word, guys, is an act of the Spirit of God amongst His people. Here's part of how Jesus speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. All of it will be reliable truth and the Word of God. And He will declare to you the things that are to come, I like this, and he, the Spirit of God, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This divine work of the Holy Spirit and the communication and the power and the effects of the Word of God. We've been talking about this from beginning to end. Guys, in renewal, we are realigned with the presence and the power of the Spirit of God. I want that. I don't know about you, but I find some myself sometimes feeling like, I just don't want that. I need that. We need that. Guys, this culture around us is falling apart in very destructive and dangerous and, dare I say, flat-out demonic ways. And our culture needs a church that is filled with the Spirit of God needs a church that is filled with the Spirit of God. Zechariah's sermon continues in chapter 8. Let's pick up a little bit more of what he has to say because there's just there's some beautiful stuff inside of here. And the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion. Zion is the stand-in for the people of God. I am jealous for Zion with a great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. The power of God works on behalf of the people of God. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. We're speaking again of the people of God, not just a physical location, but a renewal of the people of God. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, Thus says the Lord of hosts. You didn't know this was in the middle of Zechariah, but we're going to read it out loud because it's just really cool stuff. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. It is his good pleasure to do this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country and bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. This is the promise of the fullness of the Spirit of God at work amongst his people. And what a cool set of things to have said here. God's presence is not only just at work among his people, it is the most palpable and important presence among the lives of God's people. I love the imagery. They're going to go about their daily lives, but their daily lives will be filled with the abundance of God. Isn't that cool imagery? It's not just in renewal and revival, you're supposed to spend every spare moment inside of church so that we can just keep on worshiping and praying. It's not just that. It's you're going to walk around the streets. You're going to sit in your front porch. You're going to go to the park. The kids are going to be playing in the streets. The boomers are going to be sitting there with their staffs in their hands. And the Gen Zers are going to be playing football in the park. And everybody's going to get along. This is the abundance of the Spirit of God at work among his people. Get this, guys. Obedience to the Word of God is good for all of us. Your obedience to the law of God is good for me. My obedience to the law of God is good for you. It's magnificent. It is a consistent promise of God to His people in Scripture. In obedience, there is blessing. There's just no getting around it. In obedience, there is blessing. And the blessing that God intends is primarily the abundance of His presence. Here's where parts of the American church go wrong. Here's where certain segments of the American church go horribly wrong. When we speak of blessing, we're speaking of nothing but you get more money and more cars and you never get sick, right? When God talks about blessing, he talks about his presence. Do we want the blessing of financial health? Well, sometimes God gives that. But all of that eventually is going to pass away. And many of us are going to pass away before our wealth does. And then what good does that do us, right? Do we want the blessing of perpetual health? Well, sometimes God heals, but these physical bodies will, be, will die to be raised again as glorified, eternal, uh, spiritual bodies. Do we really want what will be God's blessing? We're talking about the presence and the power of God that enables us to endure all things in wealth and poverty and sickness and in health and which will shepherd us from this life into the next to, into eternity with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is blessing. This is blessing. And he says something here in verse 8 that is actually a familiar phrase in God's word. He says, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. 
This is a stunning promise. This is a beautiful promise. In fact, it is something that Jeremiah spoke a generation and a half before Zechariah and Haggai. Jeremiah speaks to the people of God about the the new covenant that God's going to make with his people. And here's part of what Jeremiah promises in chapter 32. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them. This is exactly what God says in Zechariah. Gather them from the east and gather them from the west. Which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, which actually happens in these books. And I will make them dwell in safety, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. It doesn't just end in Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra and Nehemiah. We read this promise again at the end of human history as we know it and the beginning of God's eternal kingdom with his people. Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Guys, it is beautiful, it is glorious when, in, when we gather together or we are individually involved in worship and prayer and we catch a glimpse of the presence of God. We catch a glimpse of the glory of God. This is part of the kingdom of God at work inside of our lives now and today. But can we imagine what it will be like when God says there will be a day when there will be nothing between our eyes and the presence of God? And I will be with them as their God, face to face in all of his glory. It's beautiful what Zechariah promises here and we see in Scripture. His sermon continues in chapter 8, verse 9. It goes like this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, Zechariah and Haggai and maybe others, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from foe from them who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. There was turmoil and there wasn't safety. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be the sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. This is a passage that sounds very much like some of the things that Haggai kept saying. I need you to work, and I need you to be courageous. I need you to lay aside your fear and do what God has called you to do, no matter what the enemies around you are telling you to do. And when you pick up that shovel, and when you pick up that sword, and you do what I've called you to do, there will be blessing. Because of their disobedience, there was economic upheaval and turmoil and inflation. We read all of that in Haggai. Zechariah reminds him of it. He says, but again, in blessing... There will be the hand, or excuse me, in obedience, there will be the blessing hand of God. And then chapter 8, verse 14. For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, that's what caused the exile, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus is the Lord of hosts. The fast of the fourth month. So we're back to that original question. Can you imagine this group, this delegation that came from Bethel going, Is it yes or is it no? I don't know yet. Is this yes or no? <laughs> this is the Lord of hosts. The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh. The fast that's all of your fasts shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Cold and hollow religious behavior is a kind of deception. We deceive ourselves in our relationship with God. We might even engage in some of these things to deceive our neighbors about relationship with God. You will probably be able to fool me. You will probably be able to fool others as long as that exterior veneer is doing everything it is supposed to do. I fast in the fourth month, in the fifth month, in the seventh month, and I feast in the sixth month, in the second. I, I do all of those things, and it looks right from the outside, right? God says something else is going on. I need something else. The antidote to all of that false religiosity. I love this list. It shows up in 7. It so, shows up in chapter 8. I need you to speak truth to one another. I need you to render true and accurate judgments with one another. I need you to aim at peace in your relationships with each other. Don't plan evil on other people. And for Pete's sake, stop lying. <laughs> I love how that happens in Scripture. Paul even says it in Colossians chapter 3. You belong to Jesus. Don't lie to each other. I need you obeying. I need you living the life that I've called you to live. You just take a simple list like this and ask yourself the question, how different would life be if more people simply obeyed what the Spirit of God said? How different would life be, right? And then he finally gets back around to the fasts. And he says, all of your fasts, you do all of this. You're right with me in your heart. You're obeying the things that I have called you to do because your spirit has been transformed. And then he goes back to the fasts and he says, so now, when you fast now and now and now and now, your fasts are going to be like feasts. It's not going to be mourning and brokenness and just hollow religious activity, but it's actually going to be full of joy and gladness. He doesn't tell them to stop fasting. He says if you fast and pray in the right way, you do these things in the right way, and it's going to become like feasting, right? So the idea is, is that when we do this properly, we actually feast on the Word of God. We feast on the presence of God. We feast on the obedience that results from things like this. We feast on the presence of God in His Word to us.
And the last thing that, uh, that Zechariah has to say in answer to this question, in verse 20, it goes like this. Thus is the Lord of hosts. People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. So people are going to keep coming to you, to the temple, to Jerusalem. They're going to keep coming into the circles of my people. The inhabitants of one city shall go out to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I'm going. I want you to come with me. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those days, Ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. One of God's intentions for renewed people, for his people who are obedient, is that he is creating a place where the world can come to find Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. One of the reasons that God builds a renewed and obedient body of believers is so that it becomes a safe place, but then a place that is so filled with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that others can come and they can find Jesus here. It's powerful what God does amongst his people. And we've seen this throughout our stories of revival. We've talked about this a couple of times. Renewal results in mission. All that God is calling them to do. Keep doing all these things, the fast, the feast, the sacrifices, but do them now as unto me. Do them now so that there's access that I have to your life, so that now there's a life of obedience and one that's full of the Holy Spirit because they're going to come. And when they come, I want them to know that when they show up, the presence of God is there. I want the presence of God here so powerfully that when people show up, they just know that there's something different here, that they know that the Spirit of God is here, that they know we're about Jesus Christ, guys. Can they come here and can they find Jesus? This passage of Scripture is ultimately fulfilled in one person. As Zechariah puts it, one Jew. They're going to come from everywhere. They're going to grab hold of his robe. And they're going to say, we know God is with you. You see, this is Jesus Christ again. We're right back at the feet of Jesus Christ. And it's the job of a renewed and obedient people to show the world Jesus Christ. Not me, not you, not us, but Jesus Christ. We need the Word of God at work amongst God's people. His truth, the authority of that Word. We need to keep our eyes on the presence of the Spirit, seeking the work and the power of the Spirit of God at work among His people. We need to keep our eyes on the purpose that God has given His renewed church, and that is that the world would be filled with the presence of God, that people would get to know Jesus Christ because this church exists because our families are where we are, because God has put us where we are in lives. And this becomes this vibrant and renewed church that belongs to Jesus Christ. Let's pray.